0: We're in the Gospel of Matthew, as most of you know, we're in chapter 2, our text is verses 13 through 23. Please open your Bibles there or navigate on your phone or tablet. If you are using an electronic device, which we encourage you to do, uh, just make sure it's on some kind of vibrate, we call it set to stun, uh, so that it doesn't make noises, weird noises uh, during the service causing me to make fun of you. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, the topic, King Herod orders the murder of all the boys two years old and under in the city of Bethlehem, title of our message, Sudden Tyrant Death Syndrome. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come before you now with a real humility, Lord, because this is your word and we want to hear from you. You've, in a sense, Lord, condescended to speak to us, but it's because you're compassionate and loving and you want to reveal yourself, your heart to us, Lord, a heart of acceptance and forgiveness and grace. Uh, And Lord, um, we we need really to humble ourselves, believing that we need to hear from you, uh, that there are things that... Um, Lord, we haven't figured out yet things about our own hearts and about the life that we're living uh, where we need your guidance and your direction, where we desire it, Lord, because you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. Good works be foreordained that we should discover and walk in them. And so, Lord, use this text as a springboard for your spirit to speak to our hearts this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name and those who agreed said amen. Dr. Livingston, I presume... Most of you have heard those famous words. In 1866, explorer and medical missionary David Livingston headed out to Africa on foot. He was looking for the source of the Nile River on this particular trip. He gathered together a group of local natives to guide him. Unfortunately for Livingston, his guides decided they weren't as committed as he was. One by one, they abandoned him. Some of them raided his supplies before they left. When the native guides returned to camp and the others asked what had happened to Livingston, they shrugged and said he had died. In the meantime, Livingston was stumbling through the jungle on his own, fending off every disease the jungle could throw at him. In March of 1869, alone in the jungle with no supplies, he was forced to rely on passing slave traders to escort him to a village called Bambara. He was caught there by the rainy season, and to earn his keep, he was reportedly forced to eat in a roped-off area in the rain for the entertainment of the local natives. Henry Stanley went looking for him. When he finally found Livingston crippled with dysentery and malaria, he is reported to have greeted him with that now-famous phrase, Dr. Livingston, I presume." Livingston was in hostile territory when, to his detriment, he was abandoned by his guides. I suggest to you that we, as Christians, are in a hostile territory. One verse is sufficient to prove it. It's 1 John 5, 19. It says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It sounds hostile, treacherous, dangerous. It's a good thing we have a guide. He's the Holy Spirit, and he's called our guide in John 16, verse 13. Our normal understanding of what that means is captured in this stanza from the hymn, Holy Spirit, Faithful Guide. It goes like this, Holy Spirit, Faithful Guide, ever near the Christian side, gently lead us by the hand, pilgrims in a desert land. Weary souls ever rejoice while they hear that sweetest voice, whispering softly, wanderer, come, follow me. I'll guide thee home. Livingston's guides abandoned him to his peril. Our guide will never abandon us, but we can abandon him to our great peril. We abandon him when we choose to ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit and instead follow our own plans. We would do well to understand the threat level we face while on the earth and be totally committed to finding and following the leading of God. Our text, infamous for the brutality of the murder of the young boys in Bethlehem, is a study of God's leading Joseph through hostile territory. God led, Joseph followed to the saving of the life of Jesus. We can see in God's leading of Joseph something of his leading us. To that end, I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, since the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, it is imperative you remain submitted to the Lord's leading you through it. And number two, since the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, it is imperative you remain sensitive to the Lord's leading you through it. Let's take a look, first of all, at remaining submitted to the Lord's leading in verses 13 through 18. Now, as you read this, you can't help but see God leading individuals through hostile territory. First, God led the Magi to Jesus in a thousand-mile journey fraught with danger. Next, God led the Magi away from Herod along an alternate route home to protect their lives and the lives of Jesus. And then God is going to lead Joseph again and again to protect Jesus from death at Herod's hands and at the hands of his son, Archelaus. God doesn't lead us with a star like he did the Magi. He doesn't usually lead us by dreams, although he still can if he chooses. He definitely can lead us by his indwelling Holy Spirit, always according to his word, if and when we let him. And so verse 13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. The Magi may have arrived in Bethlehem the same day they spoke to King Herod. It was only six miles away, and they were anxious to see the king of the Jews. If so, they probably received the dream to depart for home another way that same night and left either in the night or first thing in the morning. Joseph would have gotten his dream that same night as well. Herod was close and he was now mindful of the Messiah being in Bethlehem. He wasn't about to let too much time pass. Time was of the essence for all the godly players in this drama if they were going to escape. One of the very first lessons in God's leading, kind of a prerequisite we might say, is to get on it right away. If you have God's leading, if you know what he wants you to do, then get to it. Don't delay. Do what he tells you. Don't do what he tells you to not do, if that makes sense. Now, by leading, I'm not talking about mysterious signs or impressions, I'm talking about mostly things we already know that are in God's word and especially when the Holy Spirit really highlights them in our spirit as we are listening to the word being taught or are reading it for ourselves. I I know like me that when we're listening, uh, you are like me, that when we're listening to a Bible study Oftentimes it's true that that the Lord will direct your heart to something that's being talked about or maybe something that's not even being talked about, but you feel like the Lord is communicating with you. And whether you have the liberty to write in your paper Bible or to type a note in your electronic Bible, you should make note of that at least mentally and you should act upon that depending on what it is the Lord's telling you to do as soon as possible. Uh, I don't know how many times I can't remember things that, uh, you know, I wish I could remember. You know, the Lord goes to all the trouble to get me to church and to minister to me, and then I can't remember what it was he said to me. And so he wants us to get right on these things without much delay. Beyond those kinds of leadings from the Word by the Spirit, God can still lead you in a dream or by a vision. Uh, Those are examples of the Word of prophecy. We don't have any problems with those as long as they line up with the Word of God. God's never going to tell you to do something that is contrary to what He's written in His Word. And so when people say, Well, God told me to do this or that, and it's absolutely contrary to what He's already said, God cannot contradict Himself. And God does not lie, so you're just wrong about that. But if we get a dream or a prophecy or a vision, a waking vision, and it seems to line up with God's word, there's nothing unbiblical about it, then we can say that God is leading us in that way. We also believe there are supernatural gifts like the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. The word of knowledge, for example, God tells you something you couldn't possibly have known. A uh, good example in the Scripture, Jesus and the woman at the well. When she came out to draw water from the well, Jesus knew everything about her. He'd never met her before. And yet he was able to recite everything that was going on in her life because the Heavenly Father gave him a word of knowledge about her. Uh, and so the Lord can speak to us in these ways. God really has a lot in his leading arsenal in terms of how to lead us if we're listening. The point, again, is to act upon it immediately. For one reason, we are in hostile territory fighting spiritual battles that have massive consequences in our lives and in the lives of others. Delay can be disastrous. I think you will see this morning, if nothing else, any delay by the Magi or by Joseph could have had absolutely horrifying and disastrous effects. Uh, in our story and so verse 14 when he arose he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for egypt And was there until the death of herod that it might be fulfilled Which was spoken by the lord through the prophet saying out of egypt. I called my son Now the prophecy uh, Is from hosea eleven one. in its original context? It is about israel as god's son being led out of egypt by moses as their deliverer Matthew sees in it a prophetic fulfillment in Jesus being led out of Egypt to lead his people as their deliverer. There's an interesting parallel between two Josephs. Jacob and Rachel's son Joseph was used by God in the book of Genesis to keep his son, the nation of Israel, safe in Egypt until their deliverer was born, who would deliver them from their shackles and their slavery. Joseph, in our story, was used by God to keep the Son of God, Jesus, safe in Egypt until he was ready to deliver his people from their shackles of sin, and both Moses and Jesus were in danger of being murdered as infants. You remember the story? Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all the boy babies that were being born, Uh, Herod is going to order the slaughter of all the male uh, children under two years of age. So there are some amazing parallels uh, and symbols uh, in this section as Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience about Jesus being the king of the Jews and uh, the Jews reverence no one greater than Moses. Moses was, he's like Captain America to them. He was you know, their number one hero, and Matthew is getting them set up for the fact that Jesus is a greater deliverer than Moses. There are parallels between their lives, but Moses is the shadow of what Jesus is, the substance. Now, there are several fulfillments of prophecy in this section, as we'll see. It caused one commentator to say the path of Jesus was paved with prophecy, and that's true. Joseph implicitly obeyed God each step of the way. Here he gets up immediately, and undoubtedly, while it was still night, he heads out to Egypt. Travel was difficult and dangerous, and infinitely more so at night. If they took the regular caravan route south from Bethlehem to Hebron, it's modern road 60 in Israel, then sharply northward, uh, northwest rather to Gaza, they would have followed the coastal highway down to a place called Pelusium. Uh, it was the gateway to Egypt at that time. Traveling an average of 20 miles a day, they would have reached Egypt in about 10 days. And so it's a pretty difficult 10-day foot journey through difficult, dangerous territory. I can't even imagine how crazy hard this must have been. And all the more because you were fleeing for your life and you were being told to do it by an angel in your dreams. Uh, Now, uh, you know, I don't know who they were staying with in Bethlehem, but imagine getting up in the middle of the night and saying, hey, we have to get out of here. I just had a dream. An angel just appeared to me in a dream and we're headed to Egypt. What? this is the craziest thing in the list of crazy things that you've done so far, Joseph. I mean, Joseph is, you know, I I don't know. I mean, really, we look at Joseph and we think, well, he's that guy in our manger scene that's like this and it's so cool. But, I mean, this is real life and people are going to think you're nuts to be doing this. But had Joseph delayed even a short time, Jesus could have been murdered. Now, I know what you're thinking. No, he couldn't have been murdered. God would have protected him. Well, I suggest to you, this was the way God was protecting his son, our Savior, through the obedience of his servant, Joseph. We eliminate the human element in God's providence to our own detriment, thinking our slacking off is no big deal, that God will see to it that his will gets done. While God's will will be done, at the very least, thinking like that eliminates us from serving God. At worst, it can put ourselves and others in harm's way. And so, you don't want to, I mean, you want to look at this and say, hey, had Joseph not acted the way he acted, Jesus was in jeopardy of death. And of course, we think, well, God would have stepped in, but how? And what would that have meant to Joseph? And that's not even the way to think about things. The whole point of this, or one of the points of this study is, is not to go away thinking, well, everything is just kind of you know, already set like a watchmaker sets things, and so it's all gonna unfold. The idea is that Joseph obeyed God's leading every step of the way, and he did it immediately, and it had fantastic results. And, and that's, the, the, that's the lesson that we wanna take away. That's the takeaway. A word about Herod's death He died during Passover season in 4 BC. Before his death, he ordered innocent Jews to be arrested and killed at the moment he died in order to ensure that there would be grief and mourning in the land. He knew nobody would care. In fact, there'd be a celebration. And so he gathered a bunch of popular Jews and he had them in prison and he said, when I die, kill them. They were instead released and then there was a double celebration for their release and for his death. Josephus, the oft-mentioned first-century Jewish historian, described his death as coming from ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physician nor warm bath led to recovery. Man, are you glad you're not alive in those times? Although this does sound like some hospital care I've been familiar with over the years. (laughs) What's wrong with you? I have an ulcerated organ, a maggot, I'm maggot filled. Let's have a warm bath. How's that? That should really, you know, get those maggots moving. Uh, But anyway, no time to be alive, I'll tell you. But then I wonder how, you know, if if the world could go on, I don't think it will, but 200 years from now, think of the barbarism. They'll think, you, you did what? You sucked people's gallbladders out through a tube? What's the matter with you people? But anyway, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. She bore Joseph and then Benjamin, dying in her final childbirth. Her sad death came to represent the sorrow of all Jewish mothers during times of tragedy this prophecy comes from jeremiah 31 15 in which rachel who had been entombed near bethlehem some thirteen centuries before the babylonian captivity represents the mothers weeping for their children as they were led away to babylon in 586 bc in the slaughter of the male infants at the time of christ's birth Uh, and young uh, toddlership is what I call it. Rachel represents the moms of Bethlehem mourning the violent loss of their sons. Now I want to point out a fact about these murders without sounding at all callous. And, And so please bear with me. Bethlehem was an exceedingly small town Professor William F. Albright, one-time Dean of American Archaeology in the Holy Land, estimates the population of Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth, the total population, to be around 300 people. The total number of male children murdered in that small population could be, mercifully, as few as five or six. It's certainly not in the dozens or the hundreds or the thousands. Now, as I said, even one is terrifying. And we're not to make light of that. But here's here's the reason I said that. Critics love to point out that there is no independent secular record of this event. Any critic that you ever read will say, well, if this was such a monumental event, why is there no record of it? So there you go. The Bible, you know, is false. Well, first of all, It was monumental from its brutality, but not from its number. And I say to them, why would there be a record of this? In February of this year, 2013, UNICEF reported that every day, 19,000 children die worldwide from preventable causes of one kind or another. Did you read about any of them today? The total number of abortions in the United States between 1973 and 2011, the site I went to, reports it as 54 a half million plus. It breaks down like this using that number. Abortions per day, 1.2 million. Abortion, or per year, excuse me, 1.2 million. Abortions per day, 3,288. Abortions per hour, 137. Nine abortions every four minutes. One abortion every 26 seconds. You don't read about any of those on a regular basis. Uh, and, and we're talking about a massive slaughter of individuals, whether it's through abortion or through these utter, other preventable causes worldwide. Occasionally, you get a commercial on television of a starving child that tugs at your heartstrings. But, so for, for some imbecile critic to come along and say, well, five male infants were killed in Bethlehem and that you don't read anything about that in the historic record. Why would you? Of course you don't. Now, make no mistake, the slaughter was terrible. Terrible slaughters are still happening. The world lies in the power of the evil one. He's been defeated at the cross by this child who escaped and who grew to die on the cross to defeat him, but as a serious warfare, it still rages on, and there are real casualties every day. The question asked shouldn't be, what is God doing about it, but rather, what am I doing about it? One answer to that more important practical question is to be like Joseph and to be submitted to God's leading. God led Joseph, and Joseph submitted to that leading, and he made a difference. And that brings us to our second point, verses 19 through 23. Since the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, it's imperative you remain sensitive to the Lord's leading you through it. As the story continues, we see Joseph being led by the Lord twice more. I'm calling it a sensitivity to maintaining an attitude that the Lord wants to continue to guide and lead and direct. It's all too possible especially in America, to settle into a particular lifestyle. We make our plans. We have five-year plans, 10-year plans. We have retirement plans and post-retirement plans. There's nothing wrong with that as long as we remain sensitive to the Lord leading us in ways that might be different from our plans, either occasionally or totally, Even a casual survey of the Bible reveals that God called upon ordinary people like you and I to do things that were not according to their original plan. He called upon them to take radical, sometimes even risky steps of faith. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, had a lucrative business as a tax collector. Tax collectors were also called publicans. Publicans were men who bought tax franchises from the Roman emperor and then extorted additional money from the people of Israel. It was a lucrative career. When Jesus called him, Matthew instantly and without hesitation left his tax franchise to follow the Lord. God probably won't call you to quit your job tomorrow. Some of you are hoping he will, but he probably won't but he might. He is certainly sometimes going to lead you to do things that are radical and somewhat risky. It's God's modus operandi. It's how God operates. If he isn't occasionally leading you that way, then it's most likely you've become insensitive to his leading and have settled too comfortably into your plans for your own life. Verse 19, now when Herod was dead, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. This is a little off subject, but I wonder if Joseph looked forward to going to sleep or if it wasn't just a little scary. I mean, if you're Joseph, do you think, am I going to see an angel tonight? I mean, are you excited about that? I mean, really, I mean, I think some of us would be. Some of us would be, you know, trying to get ourselves tired so we could go to sleep. I think a lot of us would be drinking coffee and eating coffee beans to think, man, this dream stuff is getting on my nerves. You just never knew if the angel was going to appear to him. Now, they may not have been in Egypt very long. Some say as little as six months, maybe even less than that. There was a strong Jewish presence in Egypt, so it wasn't unusual at that time in the Roman Empire uh, to go to Egypt or for Jews to be in Egypt. Still, this would have been quite a hardship to have left everything that you couldn't carry behind. This wasn't a beacon's move. You know? this, the military didn't help them move. They just got up in the middle of the night, uh, grabbed their you know, maybe two-year-old son, and whatever they could carry with them, and they headed uh, down the 10-day journey to Egypt. Then they're in Egypt, waiting in Egypt, and waiting is never fun. If you think waiting is fun, I want to talk to you. I'm going to have you wait for me from now on. I'll take you to Disneyland with me, and you can wait in line and text me when you're 10 from the front, and we'll trade places. Waiting is no fun. It's where we go off the rails sometimes because we can grow impatient with the Lord. There's numerous stories in the Bible of those who should have waited but didn't. Abraham and Sarah should have waited but instead he went into Hagar and produced Ishmael when God hadn't told him to do that because they were impatient. Verse 21, then he arose, took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelius was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, (laughs) he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Now, after Herod's death, his territory and authority over it was split among four sons he hadn't managed to kill. You have to understand, Herod killed almost everybody in his family and anybody else that he thought looked at him funny. Archelius was a chip off the old block, and he could definitely still have thugs looking for toddlers to murder. Joseph was first told only to return to Israel. He probably took it to mean that he could return home to Bethlehem. Instead, by a combination of God's leading and his own wisdom, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Joseph must have been starting to understand that things were never going to be quite the way they once were or the way he may have thought they'd be. I don't want to engage in any silly idle speculation, but Joseph must have had some thoughts about what it would be like to have the true son of David, the king of Israel, in your house to raise. I'm pretty sure that things were not unfolding any of the ways that he could have imagined. I'm mean, even if even though I can't imagine what it would have been like for Joseph thinking okay all right this is the virgin born son of god son of david the next king of israel you got to have some idea of you know of how to raise him and what might happen around him and this is not what you are going to think of and so life is really taking a turn for joseph The imminent threat of Jesus' death had put Joseph into an action mode. We might think that if there were a more imminent threat against us, we too would be more sensitive to action. This happens, and I'm glad that it happens all the time among Christians, where you're just kind of skating by you're maybe going to church every now and then you have a mediocre devotional life you're a christian and you're happy that you are and you love the lord but you're not really serving the lord and then bam something happens to you or to a loved one or in in your circumstances and all of a sudden you know that you you know this is an imminent threat you're you're just not ready for what's going on and you flee to the lord and thank god that we do uh, you know, but I think it develops in us the understanding that, well, if there were a more imminent threat, well, even in the world in which we live, we're concerned about the threat levels all the time. We think, well, the threat level's pretty low right now. And so I don't have to be on guard. Until somebody gets blown up and then you think, oh, yeah, the threat level really got pretty high all of a sudden. And so it's that kind of thinking that gets us into a problem because the threat to us as Christians is constant and real. The devil is the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, a lying, thieving murderer who's going about seeking whom he may devour. He rules over principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. They are fallen angels whom we call demons. If you're a believer, you're always in the devil's sights. He's always lying to you. He's planning to rob you, and he wants to murder you. I think sometimes we think, and I've used this analogy before. It's a good one. Uh, we think we're like that cartoon where the sheepdog and the wolf go to work in the morning. And they say, hey, how you doing, Fred? I'm okay, Joe. How are you? You know, and, stuff. and then once they punch in... Then they try, you know, the wolf does his thing. He tries to steal the sheep and the sheepdog always gets the better of him no matter what he does. And then at the end of the day, they punch out and they go home. And you know what? It sounds funny, but Christians have a punch in, punch out mentality. We think that, well, I'll punch in, punch in as a Christian and then do battle with the devil. Ah. But over here, I'm completely safe because I've punched out. And the devil, he's going to leave me alone. Man, he'll punch you out. That's what's going to happen, because he, he hates you, and he, I don't want to scare you. Well, I do want to scare you in one sense, (laughs) into following the Lord because right now, the devil is making plans that he's going to spring on you 10 years from now. I was talking to a guy the other day who said he had this very obvious temptation just come right into his face. And I said, yeah, the devil still does that if you're stupid enough to fall for that. But he also, for every one of those, he has five that he's planning that are down the road that you don't see coming. What can you do about it? Be ready. Have the whole armor of God. Stand in the strength of Jesus Christ. That's all you need to do, but it is what you need to do. A sensitivity like Joseph's is an absolute necessity. Verse 23, he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Scholars puzzle over this because there is no place in the writings of the Old Testament prophets that has this exact wording. The prophet Isaiah calls the Messiah the branch couple of times one is in isaiah 11 verse 1 the word for branch is netzer and it's the root of the name of the city of nazareth perhaps this is the scripture matthew had in mind he may also be referring to an oral tradition among the prophets a genuine prophecy that was never recorded in any of the books of the old testament We know, for example, that Jude quoted parts of the book of Enoch as a genuine prophecy, even though the book itself is not considered part of the inspired scripture. I can say this it was no one's goal in life to settle in Nazareth of Galilee. Some historians say that Galilee was the birthplace of the zealot group known as the Sakari. The word means dagger men. They would get close to their victims, either Romans or Jews who sympathized with Romans, and then they would viciously stab them and disappear in the crowd. Galilee was no place to raise kids. Nazareth was relatively poor and overpopulated. There was a scarcity of natural resources such as water and fertile soil. Apparently, there was even an expression common at the time, can anything good come from Nazareth? Or can any good thing come? come out of Nazareth. We know that the best thing that ever happened to mankind came out of Nazareth. It was Jesus Christ. But only someone with a real sensitivity to God's leading would ever settle in Nazareth to raise his family. Has there ever been a Nazareth moment in your life? One in which you sense God's leading, but it seems so contrary to human wisdom or your own plans to go someplace or to remain someplace that seemed undesirable, or that wasn't at all on your radar or in your life plan. I'm not suggesting God always sends us to a Nazareth. That's kind of a a misnomer. People are always worried that you know if I if I really start serving the Lord, He's going to send me to. You know, some terrible place I don't want to go to. That's not true. But if he never has done anything like that in your life, or if you think he never would, well, God would never call me to to go to something like that or to be someone like that, well, then you might not be sensitive to the Lord's leading. Because all of these people that we read about in the Bible had Nazareth moments all the time, where others scratch their heads and think, what are you doing? And they had to say, I'm following the leading of the Lord. God wants me to raise the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham, in Nazareth of Galilee. That's no one. Even after Jesus revealed himself as their Messiah, they didn't believe he could be someone who came out of Nazareth. And so maybe you've never sensed that or you might have sensed it but then not submitted to it. I like to just say no to things like get get behind me, devil. Hanford, whoa, you know. Hey, now you laugh but everybody wants to get out of Hanford. All the young people want to get out of Hanford for the most part. I submit to you that you submit to the Lord and you ask the Lord where he wants you to go. There's There's plenty of places people want to go. Where does the Lord want you to go? He can't want everybody to leave Hanford for Riverdale. <laughs> but I mean, it's, I, can do, I love Hanford. I think it's great. I mean, we've made our life here, we've been here for going on 30 years. I think it's fantastic, but the Lord led us here. And what I was talking to one of the brothers last night at the prayer meeting, and he said, Wherever you go, mostly in the, in, in the world, and you talk to them, and you say, Where are you from? You say, I'm from Hanford. They always say the same thing. What is that? where is that? Where is that? And then you're reduced to telling people you're between Bakersfield and Fresno. Now you can try and tell them that you're near Visalia and sometimes people recognize that, but you're either near some place or you're between some place. It's even worse uh, if you're from Riverdale. First of all, how many Riverdales are there in the world? There's probably 12 in California. And so, you know, you, you, but people think, well, I have to get out of Hanford. I have to better myself. I don't want to stay here. Well, it's a good thing Joseph didn't have that attitude. Joseph was just listening to the leading of the Lord. And in combination with that leading in his own wisdom, he settled in Nazareth, a place none of us would have chosen when we were looking at the top 10 cities to raise our children in. It's important that we are both sensitive and submitted to God's leading and not just for our own personal growth. Lives actually hang in the balance. God's general and special providence notwithstanding, Joseph sensed and submitted and his obedience saved the life of Jesus Christ. Others were still killed. Now that's because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's a reminder of the fact that we're in a real battle There is a battle going on and there will be until the second coming of Jesus Christ. We can argue about why or we can just act obediently and with compassion. Don't be a casualty by following your own plans. Be a combatant by being led by the Holy Spirit. Let's have prayer.